This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Matt May, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Who am I and what do I do? I am Matt May, and I run a small ideas and ideas development firm in Los Angeles called Edit Innovation, and I'm the author of four books, uh, the latest one being The Laws of Subtraction. All right, and I, and I want to dig into those, The Laws of Subtraction because I loved it. I had the chance to finish it a couple days ago, but before we do that, I want to ask if I can uh, ask you to tell the story of trying to drive around the circle around the Arc de Triomphe. <laughs> sure. Um, okay. Uh, the year was 2007, and I was over in Europe on a number of speaking uh, events, and they were spread apart so much that I brought my family with me, and we spent some time in Paris. And the Arc de Triomphe is at the top of the Champs Elysees. Uh, the only way that you can really get on top of the arches to take a look around Paris is to go underneath the street. And there are about a dozen just huge arteries um, dumping into this mad, crazed, chaotic thing called uh, Charles de Gaulle's Circle there. And it just looks like, I guess it looks like uh, if you were, had landed uh, from another planet and happened to land right in front of an ice skating rink, where you've got all these weird people uh, going around in a circle. It looks like there's no real order other than a general circular flow. People are going in and out, and there just really seems to be no pattern. And I had just uh, I had just come from uh, the Netherlands and taken a look at traffic intersections that had been redesigned to be void of traditional traffic controls. And then here I am faced with this this madness. And I knew that uh, we were going to go out to the countryside. I was going to have to rent a car, and we were staying just off the uh, Arc de Triomphe Circle there, um, and I knew that I'd have to traverse it. Um, but I had learned a pretty valuable lesson from one of the urban designers um, responsible for shared space design, um, Ben Hamilton Bailey, and he said something to me that just has always stuck. He said, observe first, design second. And I thought, wow, um, there might be an application to that to my personal safety and personal life here. I got I to gotta figure out how to drive through this thing. Um, the speeds are crazy. There are no lanes. There are no controls other than when you enter. Uh, there are some policemen um, there, but they really aren't helping. And it looks like a life-threatening situation. You get on top of the Arc de Triomphe um, and you look down and it, it really makes you laugh. It looks, it looks crazy. It looks like a bunch of ants going this way and that. Um, so I sat there for a few hours. Uh, I sent my wife and daughter off to, to do some window shopping, and I sat there with a notebook, and I tried to figure out the algorithm. Uh, I knew that, that, that something was going on, and no one was really telling me, um, because I didn't speak very good French, um, no one was really telling me what the rules were. They sort of looked at me like, like I was nuts. So I had to figure it out for myself, and I finally did. Um, it's a complete reversal of what usually happens in your basic traffic circle, where those entering the traffic circle yield to those in the traffic circle, completely opposite of every traffic circle I've ever been to. Um, and once I figured that out, um, I had a little bit of confidence, and I rented a car the day that we were going out to the country, um, 
took my chances, went around once, went around twice. I was scared to death. Nothing happened, and I did it a few more times until I had the confidence uh, to, uh, you know, to have my wife and daughter in the car with me, and um, no incidents. Luckily, as a matter of fact, the entire time that I w- was there, I never saw one traffic accident, and it wasn't until we were out in the countryside uh, where we went through many traffic circles and roundabouts where it worked completely the opposite, and there were all kinds of signs and controls and yields and speed limits um, where we actually saw some uh, some fender benders. So uh, the long story short and the the uptake, if you will, or the takeaway lesson from that was that uh, sometimes it's just a very, very dirt simple rule that makes for a very uh, engaging, very effective, uh, far more orderly experience than one where lots of rules and regulations are imposed on the situation. There's really... There's really only one one rule if you get right down to it, and it's and it's be careful and uh, yield to those on on the on the left side. So uh, that's it. Yeah, and I I loved when I when I read that story, and I know it's embedded inside. I, I believe it's embedded inside the first law, but I sort of felt like that to me at least it set the tone for that kind of the entire book, which is to say that you know we think we have this need for to add structure, add rules, add policies. In reality, sometimes uh, taking them away can be just as, or if not more, effective. That sort of not necessarily less is more, but sometimes less really is better. Yeah, and it's and, and that lesson again from from Ben Hamilton Bailey. Just it's uh, you know the second part of his quote where he, he begins with um, you know observe first, design second. If we if we did that, if we observe first, design second, we would not build most of the things that we do. Um, and what happens is because the universe, because the world, uh, seems to be chaotic, um, our first impulse is to add controls to it, to add regulations, to add rules, to add policies, to get that sense of control, Um, where if we were to simply stand back and watch for a while, um, the underlying order that is emergent, that's self-organizing, and tons of people have written about this, um, really truly is there. We just need to be better disciplined at discovering it. And the whole skill of observation um, is one that isn't taught uh, here in the West as much as it is in other places in the world, um, Asia and the, and the East, for example. Um, but that kind of discipline, um, it's the discipline of the designer, if you will, that you just immerse yourself in the problem first before you ever begin to build anything, we'd probably be better off. If you think about it, um, you know, if you were to Google, for example, traffic in India or traffic in China, you would see the kinds of intersections and traffic uh, flow that you see in these redesigned urban shared spaces. Um, People are are perfectly fine to navigate through these seemingly chaotic uh, instances and experiences with a bit of intelligence. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think normally, you know, we look in our very sort of structure centered world, we look at, at pictures from those areas and they would probably they, they scare us in the sense of, oh, there's no rules, there's no structure, et cetera. And yet we find that simple things like just yield to the most vulnerable, and that's the only kind of real policy of the area, ends up being enough to get people to, to figure it out. If you turns out if you trust people to sort of organize themselves, it, it, sometimes it works, right? 
Yeah, it does. And the same, same is true of organizations, I think. And I think that we're seeing uh, some organizations um, go back to the way they started out, which, which is, you know, if you think about the startup in the garage or the entrepreneurial startup, there's not a lot of layers. There are not a lot of functions. Um, people wear many different hats. It's more of, col- uh, of, a, of a flatter structure, more collaborative structure, and the development path, if you will, is more horizontal. Interestingly, if I could find no research on the real benefits of traffic controls, for example. But I could find a good deal of research on the downside of traffic controls. And a, and a book, uh, an entire book, was written about it called Traffic. Yeah, no, great point. Um, and, and again, highlights that need for uh, to make actual research and informed decisions. But, you know, it's not like we're, that's our main whole thing that we're about over on our site, you know. Um, I want to get into these different, and, and the, the Arc to Triumph story is really um, one of uh, the broader six laws uh, of subtraction. I kind of want to get into, maybe, can we review them sort of top line, and then we'll go uh, uh, law by law and kind of talk about its implications? Sure. The first law is uh, what isn't there can often trump what is. That's probably the... Uh... That, that that is the overarching uh, law, if you will. Uh, all the others are are sort of corollaries of that and fall naturally from it. Um, it's it's the notion of that any time that there is a piece of work, a piece of art, a product, a service, any kind of idea, idea um, be it a strategy, be it a process, there are two sides to it: what is present and what is not present. And the thought is that we are hardwired to look at really only half of that equation. But sometimes it's the other half, the half that isn't there, um, that can be much more powerful by virtue of the fact that since it isn't there, or at least apparently isn't there, it requires us to inject our own imagination, our own intellect into the equation. And when we do that, when we invest our our, uh, emotional and uh, intellectual intelligence into the equation, it becomes that much more impactful. So that's the gist of that. And I guess the quick and the first example um, that I use is, is something that's very ubiquitous. It's, it's the, the FedEx logo. I'm constantly amazed at how many people, um, and my rough estimate is, is 50%, how many people or percentage of the population is not aware of the hidden arrow in the FedEx logo. Um, and once they are aware of it, and it exists between, um, and I'm not giving any, there's no spoiler alert here or, or anything, um, it's, it's, it's on every FedEx truck or package you can possibly uh, pick up, it's between E and the X. And uh, once you do see it, it becomes something you can't not see, and it becomes the most indelible part of that mark, of that icon. Um, it's considered to be one of the most uh, creative and imaginative logos. It's not because of the colors. It's not because of the, the bold lettering, which actually merges a couple of different typefaces. Um, so I picked up the phone, and I called uh, the designer, um, who uh, is Lyndon Leader. Uh, <clears throat> he was working at Landor Associates, a big um, uh, identity firm um, back in the mid-1990s, who created it, came up with it. And I had a long discussion with him, and I wanted to find out his creative process. I wanted to find out his design process. I wanted to understand how that whole thing came to be. But that's a good example of what isn't there can be more powerful than what is, because it's that white hidden arrow that uh, that, that really is the compelling part of the logo. 
Oh, no, for sure. Actually, so I read that, and I, I will confess I was aware of it ahead of time, but I, I also was not, until someone pointed out to me, I never noticed it. Uh, my mind went into some of those, uh, in a weird way, that sort of FedEx's version of the hidden Mickey at Disney World, where little things that are just the outline of the ears, right, just sort of add this tremendous amount to it, and it's little and and simple and that sort of stuff. Now, that's not necessarily subtraction, that's still addition, but it is that idea of like sometimes just giving a little hint at something often trumps at stating that over-obvious this to it. And I found I, I, yours, your book was the first that led me to be aware of this, but it's actually kind of one of the enduring principles of, of Japanese art is the idea of kind of letting other people's imaginations take over. Yes. Yes, there's, so. there is, uh, there, there are a set of, uh, oh, probably seven or eight different uh, aesthetic uh, design ideals, uh, much of them related to Zen. One of them, um, one of them being uh, Yugen, which means subtlety. Um, but there's another called Koko, uh, which is simplicity. Uh, and there, there are various, uh, there are various design principles and ideals that uh, sort of amount to the same kind of thought. And that really is, is that first law really is sort of a yin yang kind of proposal. Um, you know, going in proposition being that let, let's look at the white part. Let's look at the white space, um, emptiness and blankness and uh, that kind of, of energy, that sort of empty energy is more exalted in the Zen view and in the, in the eastern part of, of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And um, on, the, on that idea of sort of Zen and simplicity, et cetera, that takes us to the second law, which is about uh, that same similar concepts applied to rules. Because um, the second law is that the simplest rules create the most effective experience. Right, and that's the uh, and that's where we started with the with the Arc de Triomphe uh, story. But you know, if if you know where to look and what to look for, you can find examples of of that law in other places. I think I think everybody, not everyone, but a good number of of, of people remember a couple of years ago in the business community when the PowerPoint uh, about Netflix's vacation policy sort of just sort of was viral, right? right? Went went flying around the internet. Um, there no no policy vacation policy um, where you know the the associates who were essentially were were hourly and working at home um, uh, and had you know certain benefits but nobody was tracking their working hours um, but they had a standard you know, traditional vacation policy where you have a certain number of days you have to schedule them um, if you don't use them you lose them um, and it resulted in all the kinds of traditional things that happen. In most organizations with a traditional HR policy around sick days and vacation days where you sort of end up sort of gaming the system to make sure that you get all that's been uh, allotted to you. And the associates said, well, you know, no one's tracking our working hours. Why in the world would you track our non-working hours? And, you know, to, to management's credit, they said, good point. Um, and got rid of it. The only proviso being that you need to cover your work and make sure that your supervisor or manager is aware. Other than that, you can take as much as you want whenever you want. So simple rule there. And it actually has resulted in um, uh, a decreased cost to the company. For whatever reason, uh, maybe it's uh, peer pressure, who knows what it is, um, people tend to take less uh, vacation and sick days um, when they're in charge of it. And interestingly enough, the same can be said of um, salaries. Uh, there are there are a number of companies that have begun um, picking up um, what the uh, there's a South American company um, that lets uh, employees set their own salary, but the proviso is that it's transparent and everyone knows what your salary is. So 
you tend up you end up being or tend to be a little bit more conservative with what you pay yourself because everyone is looking and it's that notion of context and that's what makes the arc de triomphe work what it's what makes shared space work it's the notion of of things being out in the open and observable and transparent um when risk is there when risk is made apparent to us we are generally intelligent enough to um work around it or work with it um and I think in this, uh, I, I want to get into the third law, which also sort of circles back, uh, in my mind at least, it circled back into the FedEx logo and some other things. And it's this idea um, that limiting information, intentionally sort of keeping some things uh, from being out there, engages the imagination of, of users and customers, and in that way can almost delight them. Yeah, this is, you know, I, uh, my shorthand for this is the uh, the Mona Lisa law. Um, that same trip that I was um, that I was in Paris, uh, it was my first and it's my only time I've been to Paris. Um, I wanted to make a special trip to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa. And the reason I wanted to see the Mona Lisa is that I had read about um, innumerable books, um, art history books, uh, E.M. Gombrich and his History of Art, um, other places saying how special the Mona Lisa smile was because it changed. It was supposed to change every time you looked at it, and I just really was not getting that from any of the books or, or reproductions that I saw. So I wanted to, to see the Mona Lisa in person, and I don't know if you've been to the Louvre to see the painting or not, um, but it's very small. You can't get real close, but you can get, you know, it, it is a different feeling than looking at the Mona Lisa in, in a book. And the first time I looked at her, um, she looked, you know, just basic, kind of a smirky smile. And I took my family, uh, we, we did a tour of another wing of the Louvre. I came back and I wanted to look at her again. And this time, gosh darn it, she looked uh, a little tired. <laughs> and I said, okay, fine, all right, there's there's something there. Um, let's do this again. Let's go check out this other wing. Came back and the third time around, um, I, I, I swear to you, she was mocking me. Um, the smile was a different smile than the other two. Um, and so you do a little research and come to find out that Leonardo da Vinci was the first person to, first artist to really make paintings come to life. And it was through a technique that he invented called sfumato, which is Italian for blurry or smoky. And the real magic is that uh, he removed some information, some critical information from the Mona Lisa and the Mona Lisa smile. He removed the lines around her eyes and the corners of her mouth. Those are the two most expressive parts of the human anatomy, human facial anatomy. And what happens is because they're so ambiguous, so uncertain, much like those shared space designs, um, you inject yourself into the painting and you effectively complete the painting. You are a co-artist, a co-creator, if you will. And there are great examples of, of how that happens um, in the real world, in the, in the world of, of business. For example, I don't know if you remember when the very first iPhone came out, 2007. I don't know what it is about the year 2007, but it was a good year for, for subtraction. Um, in January 2007, Steve Jobs stands up at the Moscone Center in San Francisco and introduces the world at Macworld to this thing called an iPhone. Took everyone by surprise. 
It was missing something. It was missing a keyboard. People went crazy. Walt Mossberg of the Wall Street Journal said, what are you, nuts? You're going to remove the one enduring aspect of every telephone in the world, a keyboard? But that really wasn't the, the most um, spectacular part, I think, of, of the iPhone. It was the marketing strategy. He announces this in January. It is scheduled to go on sale in June, six months away from his demonstration. It is in the meantime, the news says this is, and the media goes berserk. They say this is the most hyped product to come down the pike in an awful long time. Well, if you go back and look, there was a complete embargo on anything. To hype something means to push it through marketing and media, publicity, right? You can't find anything. There was no publicity coming out of Apple. There were no advertisements run until just a few hours before. Uh, there were no price promotions given away. You could not. Walt, Mer Walt Mossberg himself could not get his hands on an iPhone in advance. Um, there, there was no discounting. There was no advertising, no promotion, no publicity. It was radio silence. And what happened was people, the, 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 the Apple loyalists, the bloggers of the world, and this is when a lot of the, the Mac sites actually sprang up, began filling in the blanks. They took that initial demonstration and began conjecturing on what it was, what it wasn't. People tried to get information. They couldn't. And this, this, it's, the, it, it, it's a stone soup strategy. It's a children's story about curiosity. That curiosity really, truly made the iPhone tip. 20 million people uh, expressed interest in owning one before they'd ever seen it, held it, touched it, demoed it. Um, it was it was an amazing lesson in how limiting information engages the imagination. Yeah, no, and, and MacRumors.com and several other sites owe their uh, owe their existence to the fact that uh, the Jobs and others at Apple left that open for them to just to, you know fill that void and and become in essence become co-creators of the of the hype or really sole creators of the hype really. Yeah, absolutely. So, and now yeah. and now moving into my my favorite law, I should I. Uh, I should put full disclosure on here. My favorite law of them all is Law 4, and that's only because I've, I've uh, on my own, been doing a lot of research in this um, area. And it seems to um, kind of provide the counterbalance to Law 3, which is rather than opening it up in sort of free space, et cetera, sometimes creativity actually thrives under, under the right types of constraints. Yeah, and, that, and, and the operative word there is right um, or intelligent. It's, and, and, this is, and this is the art to it. It's not enough to have some wild, crazy goal uh, out there or to, uh, to limit resources uh, unduly. Um, and I'm sure your research is probably going to reveal, uh, as you're researching into creativity, that you know, uh, time pressures of a certain type really aren't that conducive to creativity. It's the, it depends on, on, how, on the context and how relevant they are, but it's the notion of you know, intelligent constraints in the form of either limits or stretch goals um, that are achievable with, with different ways of thinking um, truly can, can drive creativity and innovation. And you know, some of my favorite stories revolve around um, you know, those stretch goals. Um, one that isn't in this uh, in the laws of subtraction, but I love to tell just because I'm from Los Angeles and I remember quite distinctly when it happened um, is 1994 when we were hit with something called the Northridge earthquake, 
and it destroyed several of the major arteries around Los Angeles, one of them being uh, the main highway uh, that leads from downtown to the beach. Roughly 350,000 people back then traveled that every day and were dependent on getting from the west side of L.A. to downtown. And it, the, the, the freeway buckled. And the early estimates from the California Transportation Authority, locally known as, as Caltrans, um, put the damage at easily $1 million a day, and it would take a year and a half to get that freeway up and running again. A, con- a commercial construction company uh, led by a guy by the name of C.C. Meyer up in the San Francisco Bay Area read that and said that cannot possibly be right. How can that be? How are you For a year and a half, you're going to strand people um, w- with no real effective way uh, you're going you're gonna to tie up the entire city. So he made his way to the, the mayor's office, and he said, listen, I am fairly certain that I can get this up and running in under six months. Um, yes, we'll probably have to work 24-7 to do that, but a year and a half, um, let, let me cut you know, two-thirds out of that equation for you. And they came up with a contract, and the contract was actually uh, for four months, 120 days, and there were some performance um, performance requirements attached to it. Um, he won, It was a $15 million contract, and he had to put up his own money. And he said, you know, for every day I come in under 120 days, I want a $200,000 bonus. And the mayor said, to his credit, that's fine, but every day you're over budget, time-wise, uh, it's $205,000, which is kind of an ingenious way to ensure the contract uh, time proviso. Well, um, that freeway was up and running in 66 days. Hmm. Were they running on the job? Sure. Were they working 24-7? Sure. But the real ingenious thing that they did to make sure that they made money and not just break even and to get that performance bonus, that time performance bonus, was they took the waste and the fat and the excess out of the process of approval. They said, we need to have a site inspector there to approve our work real-time along with us. As we're working 24 hours a day, we need someone there. I don't care how you do it. You have to have someone there to approve the work as it's completed. We don't want to complete the work. Wait two weeks for the inspector to come out, in which case we're idle. Uh, We can't move on until this particular piece is done. And then to come to find out it's not up to code or up to spec, and then we've got to rework it. We've got to change the defect. We've got to wait to reschedule them. They simply took the fat out of the system. And that's what an intelligent constraint can actually do. It can reveal the waste, the excess, the, the hard-to-use aspects of, of whatever it is you're working on. It's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, no, that's an, an awesome story of, of one sort of that, that power of what you can do if you really kind of look at, okay, here's, what, here's the situation, here's the constraints that we have now. Let's, let's kind of put our creativity at work. It also um, kind of strikes at home for me, as, as you know, my day job is as a university professor, and I find that when you give tight deadlines and things like that, you get work, quality work done uh, much more quickly than when you give them an entire semester, right, and just let them free reign, and you get less quality, usually, sometimes you get less quality work uh, in the same or longer amount of time. It's kind of funny how that, um, that sort of works. I'm sure the freeway project's a much bigger example, but uh, it hits home for sure. Yeah, you know, and there's not a designer in the world that loves a client to come to them and say, you have free reigns. Go, just do whatever you do, come up with something. They're much 
they want the constraint. They want the edge of the canvas. They want, you know, the eight musical notes. Um, you know, they need that box to to work in and around. It's it's very difficult to think outside the box unless you have a box in the first place. Put it that way. That's why um, we invented the box. Yeah, I I, I I like to talk about it as respect the box. Um, there's usually a lot of room inside the box to to you know to use your resourcefulness. But um, you know you know we've chatted about uh, made to stick, and I think there's an example in in that book. Um, if I asked you to tick off 25 things that are white, you'd probably get you know five or six right away, um, and then struggle to come up with a full 25. If I ask you to name 25 things that are white in your kitchen, put that constraint around it, you'd have a much easier time answering it. So the notion of, of creativity here is is sort of one that, that really is probably a better word, I think, might be resourceful. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's actually one of the key words I try and use with my uh, students a lot of times when they say, we don't have enough time. I said, no, you haven't tapped into your resourcefulness. It's not a lack of resources. It's a lack of resourcefulness. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Right on the mark. So let's move into law five, which is that break is the important part of breakthrough. Yeah, to my mind, there are there are there are two kinds of break. Um, there there are the kinds that you make, um, and there are the kinds that you take. And I think we've all heard the the cliche around um, you know creativity demands destruction, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm referring to the, the kind of break that you make as the breaking of a pattern. Um, back to you know those Zen uh, uh, design ideals, one of them is called Datsuzoko. And I don't know if you've ever seen a, a Zen uh, rock garden or a stone garden or a Niwa garden, as they're called, friendship garden. Um, but they are, in addition to the fact that there's not there's nothing really growing in them, um, it's basically sea gravel and, and boulders and rocks, and there's some trees depending on, on the nature of the particular garden you're looking at. But um, those that are raked and have patterns in them, it's always fascinating to, to take a look at the patterns and, and the lines and how there are no footprints and how certain patterns break another pattern and, and create uh, a certain mystique or mystery or engagement. So um, the translation of that and the applicability of that to the world of business um, is that oftentimes in an organization, um, we are so mired in the day-to-day, the work-a-day, the putting out of the daily fires, the just let me get to the 10-day sales report, get me to the end of the month, the the month closing, the the quarterly statement, um, that in order to, to really get creative and innovative and come up with an idea that will allow you to truly stand out and remain relevant in what's, you know, I, I think is a, is a fairly distracting and disruptive world in the first place, um, you, sometime need, you sometimes need to break away from that main operation um, and create a new pattern. And, and I love to tell the story of Skunk Works. Um, and not a lot of people understand what Skunk Works or where it came from. We've all heard the term, and we loosely uh, associate it with um, this sort of grow mushrooms in the dark kind of project that a couple people take on themselves, and they work extra hours, or they work outside the, the lines of the, uh, of the main operation or the main organization. But uh, what I wanted to do was to trace the, the, uh, the genesis of the term in the first place, and I traced it to, to Lockheed Corporation, and um, 
uh, you know, back in World War II, uh, when they had to come up with a jet fighter plane in sort of the same kind of of uh, Santa Monica freeway story that I just told. They had a certain amount of time, certain uh, months and, and resources to do it, and they were limited uh, to do it. And they, the War Department wanted uh, Lockheed and their fairly maverick chief designer to handle the project because at the time they were responsible for building all the P-38s, the, the prop planes that you see in all the World War II footage. Um, but they needed a jet fighter, um, and they wanted him to do it. The problem was there was no space. Um, at the Lockheed, uh, at the main operation. It was set up next to the Burbank Airport in uh, outside Los Angeles, and there was no space. So he broke away, and he took with him the best designers, the best engineers, and the best mechanics. He set up shop down the street uh, next to a, a very uh, stinky factory, a plastics factory, and it reminded everyone of Little Abner, um, the cartoon Little Abner, and the Skunk Works factory in Little Abner. Um, it, and that's spelled S-K-O-N-K, um, to the point where one day one of the engineers actually answered the phone that way, and the name just stuck uh, until the Little Abner publisher uh, got got wind of it and made them change it, and they changed it to Skunk Works. And Skunk Works is a, is a, it's a trademarked name, a trademarked term, and it, it lives, the, uh, the Lockheed Skunk Works lives in an actual, it's, it's their name, formal name for their advanced development programs, in a building out in the Mojave Desert. Uh, I've been there. I've tried to get in several times. Um, but you go by, you'll see a big skunk logo on it. Um, and um, that kind of mentality is one that has proven to be fairly effective, especially for larger organizations. How do you become entrepreneurial when you've got all this infrastructure in place and all these, these different silos and, and all these rules and regulations and policies? Sometimes you just need to break that pattern. It's what Steve Jobs did when they sort of ran him out of Apple, right? He, he took some of the, you know, he cherry-picked some of the best designers and engineers and moved a couple blocks away, set up the Macintosh division, called everyone pirates and said, it, you know, it's better to be a pirate than be, be in the Navy. And that kind of thinking really um, sort of frees the operation, gives them a certain autonomy, um, but it's tied to a, to a stretch goal or two and, and, a, and a definite strategy that's aligned to the mission of the company, and that really is an effective way to, uh, to innovate. So it's a notion of breaking a pattern is, is really what I was after with that law. Oh, for sure. And, and interestingly, it plays into Law 6, because one of the best ways to sort of break that pattern is to not do the knee-jerk reaction of something. Law 6 tells us sometimes doing something isn't actually better than doing nothing. Yeah, and I, I, um, I uh, several years ago, I, I, I got a lesson in, in that law from a gentleman by the name of Boyd Matson, who is a National Geographic Adventure journalist. He and I were speaking at the same event um, in Oklahoma, and the name of his presentation I thought was just absolutely brilliant. It was How to Stand Still When the Hippos Charge. And I thought, my gosh, what an elegant solution. Who would think to do that? You've got a 2,000-pound beast barreling down at you, and you're going to stand still? That goes against everything we are hardwired to do. We have a fight-or-flight mechanism, and standing still doing nothing is just not part of our DNA. But it's the only way that you'll remain alive. You know, you're on a photo photo, you know, safari, and, and Mama Hippo doesn't like the way you're, you're taking pictures of her calf, and she charges, don't care how fast you are, you will die if you run. Now, I, I, I don't know exactly how he figured that out um, <laughs> and lived to tell, um, but 
I think it's a good metaphor for what uh, what companies and businesses and people, individuals are facing. Whether it's an uncertain economy, whether it's a you know a competitor that seems to be this this beast that is always breathing down our neck, sometimes doing nothing is better than doing something, and it reverses the the idea that we always hear, uh, which is. Hey, don't just stand there. Do something. It reverses all of that. Don't just do something. Stand there, which is which gets back to observe first, design second. And I wanted to talk about in, in this particular uh, law, in this particular um, guideline, if you will, how do you effectively or proactively or productively do nothing? And it turns out there's some real uh, psychology and some real science around the notion of of taking breaks. I mean, there is a reason why we get a lot of our good ideas, not when we are immersed in a particular challenge, but when we have steeped ourselves in it for a certain amount of time, we've gotten away from it, we're doing something of a routine nature, which calls into play a different part of our brain um, that allows the, you know, the right brain, the stuff that happens in the hippocampus that seems to work on its own schedule to make the kinds of connections um, that it needs to make that people call creativity, which is where there are connections made between seemingly disparate things, um, and you get this flash of insight, this creative insight, and it turns out that um, you know whether you're driving, you're taking a daydreaming walk, you're taking a nap, taking a long language shower, whatever your method for quieting your mind is, there seems to be some science around the brainstorm requiring a, a bit of quiet before that storm. Um, so that's what I was after with uh, with that law. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I can I can tell you it works from personal experience. I, I love that you actually listed a bunch of different ways um, to sort of take that uh, that pause um, and and give yourself that little bit of doing nothing. And then, of course, one of them was obviously the shower, which no one needs an explanation for. I'm sure we all have uh, a personal example of those breakthroughs coming in in the shower. And and I love um, each and every kind of, every, every one of the the six laws. Some of them are, are ironic because there's. I felt like I was reading parts of some of uh, the research that I've been doing, but uh, definitely said more elegantly. Um, but uh, one thing that's interesting to me about all of them, they all, like you said earlier, tie into law one. And law one gives us some some thoughts um, towards where we can kind of begin. But I also wanted to get your uh, your opinion on it. You know, I'm a I'm a manager. I'm an individual contributor. I'm a leader. What what can I do? What's where can I start on sort of implementing some of these laws? But besides buying the book, which I recommend everybody do in triplicate, one for you and your manager and your spouse or whoever else is going to be paying attention to this crazy subtraction quest you're going to engage in. But where what's where's the good way to get started on this quest for subtraction? Okay, yeah, good question. And you know, I I need to confess that um, a lot of this I, I started down this path um, because several years ago I was I was just plain. Uh, uh, stuck in a project. Um, many people know this, but um, I, I was sort of a captive consultant, um, and I say that uh, you know with a smile in my voice, to a company called Toyota uh, for eight years. And in the middle of that eight years, I ran up against a project um, where I had absolutely no idea what to do. And I use those, those words um, uh, very, very, they're, they're filled with meaning, what to do. I, I, I was, you know, hired to advise them, um, which means sort of telling people what to do. And I was at a loss and I was really ready to, to walk away and say, I can, I can't help you. Um, I, I'm sorry for this. Um, and, um, that's when you begin to look at alternative solutions to your problem and, and look for different pathways. And 
it opens up your mind to to different ideas. And lo and behold, I, I came into the, the the workstation that I was uh, planted at, and there was a little piece of Chinese um, uh, poetry left for me on a little sticky note, which I, I still have to this day, um, by Lao Tzu. Um, and, it, you know, it in part read... Um, uh, to to attain knowledge, add things every day. To attain wisdom, subtract things every day. And it made it it, it made me stop and think. Um, and I began to read uh, his work. And this is three thousand, you know, twenty five hundred year old wisdom. Um, read his other works. And there's another uh, snippet that goes: um, Profit comes from what is there, but usefulness comes from what is not there and he gives the example of a you know a clay you know if you shape clay into a vessel you make money from the vessel itself but it's the the space within that makes it useful and i thought oh man maybe i'm looking at my problem the wrong way just around that time though it was this was 2003 i read an essay by jim collins name that's probably familiar to your entire uh audience um and it was in usa today the name of the essay was called um best new year's resolution a stop doing list and I thought, wow, someone's trying to tell me something. Um, and I read through that essay, and he he tells you how to create a stop doing list. And you know, he ends the entire essay um, with something very close to law number one, which it goes something like, um, a, a truly great piece of work is marked not just by what's in the final piece, but equally what is not. And but he tells you how to create a stop doing list. And this gets back to your question. The first place that I would begin would be to create a stop doing list. And I would advise doing it in exactly the way that Jim suggests. Create your to-do list. And whether that's a daily task list, whether that's your stretch goals for the year, you know, we're coming up to a new year uh, soon. It's when everyone puts these grandiose uh, resolutions down. Usually they're out the window by, by the middle of January. Come up with your to-do list. Um, your goals, your objectives, your, and then prioritize them as you normally would. That's sort of step, step two. And here's the hard part, step three. You take a look at your list, and let's say it's got ten items on it. Knock out two of them, the bottom two, forever. And I'm talking about literally, percentage-wise, take the to- bottom 20%. You've got five goals, take the bottom one out. You've got 100 goals, take the bottom 20 out. And I, and I do mean this literally, write them down on a piece of paper, Take your scissors, cut them off, crumple them up, rip them up, throw them in the trash, and never look at them again. That is a great place to start Um, for anyone, whether it's your personal life, your personal work, uh, whether it's a a business that you're running. Uh, By gosh, I was in a a session um, a few weeks ago, and they were trying to come up with their roadmap. This was a product development um, division of of a company. They were coming up with their product development roadmap for 2013, and the list kept getting longer and longer and longer. And and to the point I finally had to say, guys, stop. You're never going to get to those. Um, Forget the kitchen sink approach to things. So that's a very practical way to start. And another practical way is ask others. Um, you will probably have to shut people up if you ask them a very simple question. What would you love for me to stop doing? Ask it a significant other in your life. Ask it business partner, another division. They will come up with a very nice list of all the things that you are inadvertently and unconsciously doing that get in the way of what they consider to be real value. And that's what this whole thing is about anyway. How do you deliver value 
in a way that's compelling with the least amount of burden for someone on the receiving end. No, it's great advice. And I, I actually remember reading the, the Jim Collins article. Um, when it came out, I was somewhat of a Jim Collins fanboy. And I remember I did, uh, I actually uh, read multiple articles of his around the same time with the stop doing list and also the stopwatch thing. The stopwatch thing never, I never could get the hang of timing my different activities, et cetera. But I, I actually do to this day sit down um, sometime towards the end of one year, the beginning of another. It's not always at the new year and rank order every project that I'm involved in and everything, including family, community, you know, my own sort of private time, church, all of those, and every work project I'm involved in and rank them. And then that's, that's the rank that I set my schedule with every single week, looking at the week and where things go in that, uh, in that week. It all depends on that list. And I probably need to just cross out the items that rank, you know, 38th because they never get on the week anyway. So, well, that's the point. That's exactly the point. And if you do get to them, uh, by that time, um, you'll sub-optimize what you wanted to achieve anyway. So uh, yeah. better off uh, not doing it. Yeah, no, ab- great advice, great advice. I want to switch one last question and switch a little bit from um, the book, which is a phenomenal read, to, to you and ask, wh- what are you reading right now? What am I reading? You know, um, I, I, there are a couple books that um, I'm reading for, for myself, and, what, and the two that um, sort of spring uh, to mind that I'm just loving are, one is Quiet, um, it, it, because I'm sort of an introvert, um, and uh, that's just a, a great book, and I think it speaks to me uh, just personally, um, but it also is sort of in keeping with my general frame of mind. Um, that last law is all about sort of quieting the mind. So, so quiet is one. And the other is The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, which, quite frankly, I think every male needs to read. Um, the, the notion of uh, biology um, and, and, in specific, certain hormones that, uh, that are inherent to the male um, uh, species um, having much more to do with uh, the decisions we make um, the kinds of actions that we take uh, is just a—it's just a compelling, phenomenal uh, read, and it's really quite eye-opening. Um, so those are the two things that, that I'm uh, reading. I, I love to read books that have um, application to the world of business and industry um, that are not straight-ahead business books. Uh, one of them being, for example, uh, Moneyball. I uh, read that a few years ago, and, and Michael Lewis's stuff in general. But that one is that one um, is in keeping with sort of the laws of subtraction. Um, you know, certain limited resources, and how do you be uh, as effective as you can? You have to certain cha- you have to challenge certain patterns of thinking. Um, those kinds of books really um, hit home with me, and uh, you know, I love those kinds of reads. Yeah, no, absolutely. My, Michael Lewis is on my my short list of just pre-order whenever you find out about a yep. the newest one of them coming out. You know, but before anybody reads Michael Lewis, they should probably pick up uh, the Laws of Subtraction and figure out what to cut out of their life to have some time to read Michael Lewis. No, I'm I'm just kidding. But overall, how to bring some simplicity into their life and how to be more effective as as contributors, as leaders, as, as human beings. There's some phenomenal stuff inside Laws of, of Subtraction. So Matt, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. This was fun. <laughs>